welcome Neil. Sorry we're running a little late. We have a computer that's dying. Very sad. I think it has a virus. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from the United States, where we've been putting profits before people since 1776, this is hell. And on the show today, that is exactly what we will be talking about. How the U.S., from the very beginning, guided by whatever you want to call those rich, white, slave-owning a-holes who wrote the Constitution, the founding fathers, the framers, and, and framers seems more appropriate because I feel like I've been framed for a crime I did not commit whenever I am complicit within this horribly undemocratic system we have here in the United States. From the very outset, the U.S. has been not about democracy or about anything but protecting the rights of property, which means a nation for the rich, by the rich, and the rest of the lot of you can bugger off. We'll discuss exactly how undemocratic the U.S. was from jump and how its holiest of holies, the U.S. Constitution, institutionalizes that lack of democracy when we talk in a few to Yekaterina Ozyashvili, who wrote the Left Voice article, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy, Worshipped by liberals and conservatives alike, the U.S. Constitution is an explicitly undemocratic and racist document that has been used time and again to exclude the vast majority of Americans from any political or economic power. A true democracy requires a socialist constitution. I know, long subtitle, but now you know what this story is about. Ekaterina teaches politics at Sarah Lawrence College. She is a past recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship and the Social Science Research Council's International Dissertation Research Fellowship, conducting field research in Russia. And of course, we'll wrap up the week, as we do most weeks with the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorch. And this week, Jeff ranks the Austrian nobility. Who knew they still had any left? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, podcast host, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for your weekend? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I was uh, thinking about just staying home all weekend and being driven insane by a toddler and a dog that uh, found some skunk juice on someone's lawn and then rolled in it. Uh, sweet. That sounds awesome. Have you done the tomato juice thing yet? Have you gone that far? Uh, no. I'd rather be with my dog than my kid at this point. <laughs> Dude. Uh, did you hear about Brian Muir? No. Oh, that he's quarantined. Oh, so check this out. I want to share this with everybody because this is quite an amazing story. Brian Muir, uh, semi-regular contributor on our show, our correspondent in Sao Paulo who tells us about all things Brazil. He was the person who broke all the lawfare stories, all the stuff about Jair Bolsonaro, all the stuff about Lula, all the stuff about Dilma on our show dating back to 2014, 2013. Uh, he writes for Telesur English for Brazil Wire. So Brian Muir posts on Facebook the other day about an update about his, well, his quarantine. He writes, I've just been ordered by my doctor to spend 14 days inside the apartment. I do not have coronavirus. I'm not in any type of risk group for coronavirus, my doctor tells me. Basically, it is that the pneumonia, which left my system five weeks ago, also left me with an inflamed bronchial tube, and that coupled with a bad sinus infection is causing me to periodically start coughing and wheezing uncontrollably like a hyena. So my doctor tells me, I'm ordering you to stay inside for two weeks, not for 
health reasons, but because people could hear you coughing like that on the street and think that it is coronavirus, and then you could be attacked by an angry mob. Now, I would say that is wanting you to stay inside for health reasons because you don't want to be beat up by an angry mob. But yes, folks, it has gotten to that point. People coughing on the streets in Brazil leads to being beaten by an angry mob. This week's question from Elle is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, which contains 25 interviews we've featured here on the show that span the past 20 years. You can find the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century as well as all of our merchandise, including our trucker cap that Alex absolutely loves. Our steel camping mug, mug, which is great for rattling on the bars of your cell. You know, the bars even installed on all your windows due to the virus. We also have t-shirts telling people how you feel about our new world of coronavirus and tote bags that are perfect for carrying needed supplies from looted grocery stores in this dystopian future. You can find all of that at our website, thisishell.com, when you click on support, where you can see all the different ways you can be part of completely listener-supported This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have any more answers? Answers to this week's question from hell. Yeah, we got a bunch. Almost like people don't have anything else to do right now. <laughs> uh, Andy E says, I keep running out of beer. Bradley R says, Creative recipes for dog food. Wally R says, Potable scotch. <laughs> potable. Uh, potable Luke, scotch. Uh, Luke H says, Hope. Kevin B says, Gold bullion. I mean to stop at Fort Knox and it slipped my mind. Fortunately, being an alchemist, I have Bunsen burner and I've been turning tuna cans, a base metal, into gold all morning. I don't know if alchemists are allowed to use Bunsen burners. I'm really not Or tuna cans. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Joff M says, skin. <laughs> uh, Justin M says, time. Mark AC says, whiskey, bullets, and Vaseline in that order. <laughs> Couple I, more. I assume that's to make the bullets go out faster. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Couple more. Uh, what did you already run out of in your uh, self-quarantine bunker? Isla C says, I've already run out of patience with people not staying home and thinking this whole pandemic is just a conspiracy theory. This is just the flu. They know better than medical experts. All we have to do is pray this away. God is winnowing humanity. They're fit and healthy and therefore can gallivant outside all they want. That it's just the liberal media that's overhyping this whole thing. And I could hold my breath for 10 seconds. I don't have the virus. Stay home, people. <laughs> winnowing and gallivant. The same answer. Not bad. Any more? Uh, we got a ton more. You want me to go through some of them uh, now, or you want to get uh, Yekaterina on? Yeah, let's go to Yekaterina, because we're running a little bit right, late uh, for let her. let me give her a call. All right. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell after today's guest, and we'll reveal our favorite answer following Jeff. This is hell, and nothing will ever be the same again. At least, I hope not. I know we all are thinking, hoping, praying it will, that we will all go back to whatever normal was before this and remember when the normal we went want to go back to was the new normal that we were all trying to get acclimated to and that new normal that we seemingly accepted without hesitation was climate change and global warming if i hear one more person call this the new normal i'm gonna plot this is not normal nor should we accept this as normal this is bullshit and my apologies to alex for swearing on this show twice this week because he has to bleep it out for the radio stations where our show airs. There is no need to be nostalgic or to have any desire to make the world great again to whatever it was before the virus 
came to America, to the world. You know, what we had was never great. It was only great in our fantasies and the fictions we told ourselves about how great everything was. When more and more people were falling into poverty, more and more were becoming homeless, more and more were dying because they could not pay for medical treatment, thus tearing up, up then lighting on fire any Hippocratic oath doctors and nurses have here in the U.S. The world sucked, and I'm in no big rush to recreate that dumpster fire. Yeah, I, I can't wait to get back to the old new normal of the U.S. engaged in constant wars. That was great. The forever war we simply put up with for 20 freaking years as both Republicans and Democrats support the endless conflagrations the U.S. funds around the world. Hell, that got so normal, even President Trump forgot about the war as ex existing, claiming only this week, despite being at war his entire time as president, that he now, now, with the virus, he feels like a wartime president. Even the president of the United States doesn't recognize the many wars the United States is fighting in as wars anymore. That's some support for the troops when you don't recognize they're fighting overseas as a freaking war. Do we really want to go back to the time before the virus with ever-expanding inequality and growing racial animus? Is that what we want to return to, really? Fascist trolls dictating the parameters of debate because of a spineless media that is easily intimidated and bullied by reactionaries? Look at the responses by the Trump administration. Every one of them, if they had been done by a Democrat, would have been labeled by Republicans as socialist, an attempt by Democrats to politicize the process, and CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News would all be just echoing that framing. Is that the world we want to prop back up? A world where Nixon can go to China, Trump can go to South Korea, but if Obama dares to sign a peace pact with Iran to avoid a nuclear war, He's weak, if not a traitor. I don't want what we have right now to be the new normal. I don't want the old normal, because neither is normal. This is not usual. This is highly unusual. This is not typical. And this is certainly not what was expected. At least with climate change, it was not only what we expected, but we've been screaming about it for decades while the right insisted that it was not happening, living in their deep denial about the reality of the world around them, as they always do, imagining America that they can make great again, imagining this to be a new normal, imagining that we can go back to the time before the virus. No, this is not the new normal. And don't accept it as the new normal. This is not normal. This is hell. Coming up, the very undemocratic U.S. Constitution has enshrined a very undemocratic United States. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from Al. We'll name our favorite. And the winner of a This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, loaded with 25 interviews, we did over the past 20 years. It's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now, along with all of our other merchandise, our trucker cap, T-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, and more at thisishell.com when you click on support. We'll also have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff ranks the Austrian nobility, and Alex will tell us what's happening on next week's shows. And we will have shows next week. We will continue doing our show throughout the coronavirus every weekday, Monday through Friday uh, at 10 a.m., Monday through Thursday here at thisishell.com, and on Fridays at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. The United States is not a democracy, nor was it 
ever intended to be one. And those rights in the Bill of Rights? Yeah, those aren't actually guaranteed rights as much as they are liberties, and there's a big difference. Here to explain exactly how undemocratic the United States has been from even before there was a United States, Yekaterina Oziashvili wrote the Left Voice article, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy. Yekaterina teaches politics at Sarah Lawrence College. Welcome to the show, Yekaterina. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for having me. It's great having you on the show. You write that since 2016, there has been no shortage of arguments that liberal democracy is in decline. Democrats and progressives point to the role of money in politics, to neoliberal policies that have exacerbated socioeconomic inequalities, and to multiple attempts at disenfranchising large portions of the poor and of people of color. Republicans, conservatives, many liberals argue that democracy has been threatened by too much popular control. Respected mainstream media outlets have published articles with titles such as It's Time for the Elites to Rise Up Against the Ignorant Masses, Democracies End When They Are Too Democratic. All of these arguments, regardless of whether they are put forward by progressives or conservatives, make the same assumption that at some point in the past, democracy worked. Must liberal democracy be by the elites and for the elites? Because I'm wondering if liberal democracy is a good thing, a good idea, but it has been corrupted by the power of the elites? Or is liberal democracy, by its very nature, for and by the elite? Um, I think uh, liberal democracy specifically is by its very nature for and by the elite. Um, And, you know, specific definition of liberal democracy is democracy that focuses on uh, process rather than substance. So as long as you have the right to vote, and that doesn't have to be applied to everybody, right? You can ex- exclude a bunch of people from that right. But as long as people more or less have the right to vote and elections uh, limited with by electoral system, and our electoral system is quite limiting, um, as long as people participate somehow in this electoral process, it's called a democracy. Um, but from the beginning, of course, elites make sure that uh, that limited process of participation through voting uh, is already uh, excluded, uh, exclusionary, right? Um, in order to make sure that the majority of people never uh, take part in it. So I would say that liberal democracy, because it doesn't actually take the, subst- the substantive rights into account, uh, is by definition uh, elites uh, democracy. And uh, as opposed to liberal democracy, I would say that uh, substantive or rather radical democracy would be democracy for the people. And that democracy would include things like right to housing um, and uh, food, right? Food security, quality food, quality education, uh, focus on uh, ability to participate meaningfully in the political process, um, control over one's uh, workplace um, and so forth, that kind of democracy. Uh, is the one that is uh, supposed to represent the people. So is liberal democracy then, and I I hope I'm not just restating the same question, I don't think I am at least, uh, is liberal democracy then democracy that has been co-opted, that is being held hostage by the wealthy? Um, it has been so uh, in a way, so it has been co-opted by the wealthy, right? But I think because liberal democracy again only focuses on the process itself and doesn't require any kind of uh, any rights, um, it was by definition expected in unequal society to be co-opted by the wealthy. 
So to what extent do you think, because you write that liberal democracy was never meant to represent the interests of the masses, the system was built by the elites and for the elites, to what extent do you believe the public recognizes that, that this this power of elites over us and supports it? That is, we support liberal democracy because we support the elite and their control over our government as well as our political and economic systems more generally. Are both American patriotism and nationalism rooted in support for an elite class to control us? I think I, I think I have kind of two answers to this question. I think part of the public uh, does not recognize that this liberal democracy is is not supposed to represent them. Um, but I think part of the public uh, uh, kind of recognizes that, but it's not to good ends, right? So they remove themselves from politics and kind of decided that politics is not meant to be for the people anyway, everything is corrupt, you know, corruption is kind of a main word everybody uses. Um, it means a lot of different things for different people, of course, but um, they say everything is corrupt and therefore why even try to to improve anything? They take the, the given state of affairs as a given, um, but the majority population, I would say, do think that liberal democracy is meant to represent them. They don't know what that means really to live in a democratic society. I don't think American public really understands what democracy is. Um, and they equate oftentimes market with democracy. Um, and therefore, as long as they you know, uh, can go and change jobs if they want to, um, or rather government can't tell them not to change jobs, uh, they think they live in a democratic society. We are speaking to Yekaterina Ozyashvili, who wrote the Left Voice article, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy. Yekaterina is a past recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship and the Social Science Research Council's International Dissertation Research Fellowship conducting field research in Russia. You write progressives believe that liberal democratic decay is a product of too little democracy, while conservatives believe that the problem is too much of it. However, both progressives and conservatives use the U.S. Constitution as the trump card, accusing the other side of misunderstanding or misrepresenting the Constitution and distorting its democratic character. Indeed, there is nothing as quintessentially American as the American Constitution, and it is used and abused in the fiery and patriotic speeches of politicians and political pundits with the fervor of Catholic priests, just as the veneration of the Bible was used to keep the masses poor and oppressed. The Constitution has been used to keep working people from political and economic power. Why is keeping people from political and economic power, keeping them poor and oppressed, why is that sustainable? How did liberal democracy, or has liberal democracy mastered that ability to keep the people poor and oppressed? I think in the United States especially, I think we've been extremely good at it. Um, and, you know, of course, we've... Uh, it's not sustainable in the long term, and we all know that, right? But in the short term, um, we have been able to maintain that balance. And there was, you know, uh, at the end of the, at the beginning of twentieth century, of course, we uh, liberalism, um, liberalism, liberalism got to us to this point of crisis that led us to Great Depression. And during that time, um, under the FDR leadership at the time, uh, temporarily. Uh, government realized that we needed to do something, right, to create some kind of safety net in order for people to not to revolt effectively, in order to protect capitalism. Um, but that kind of golden age, right, of social welfare, as limited as it was in the United States, you know, means-tested programs and all that, um, 
it was only it was also unsustainable within the capitalist model, of course. And within you know 30 years, the whole thing fell apart. Capital uh, creates a new revolution, right, against uh, the population, and you know neoliberalism became the new normal. So that is to say, um, it it has fluctuations, right? At some point, you can only keep people down for so long until they rebel, or there's potential for rebellion. Um, and government can, has fixes for it, sometimes applies those fixes. But in long term, I don't think that's sustainable. When it comes to those fixes, uh, with the ability to amend, doesn't the U.S. Constitution have a built-in mechanism so we can fix any and all of its shortcomings? Doesn't our ability to change and alter the framework for the U.S. make the Constitution democratic, at least to some degree, and make the United States democratic? Um, the the uh, amendments are so difficult though, to implement. Um, and our federalism makes it even more difficult, right? And that was one of the intentions of the founders, of course, right? Federal Republic, extended federal republic, to make the country so large and so divided that, as Madison in, in Federalist Number 10 made it very clear, he said, look, the majority that we all we need to worry about are the poor, the property, property-less masses. Um, and if they have their way, if they get together and realize their common interest, they will lead to, you know, uh, demand such wicked projects as equal distribution of wealth. Um, so there are certain, you know, flexibility within the constitution. The, the founders knew that the constitution had to be flexible, of course, in order to be sustainable in long term. Um, but those fixes are very, very difficult to implement. And when you mention Federalist Paper Number 10, you write that it's most often remembered as the Federalist Paper that warns against the evils of factions. But Madison was very clear about which factions he found dangerous. Then you quote Madison writing, the most common and durable source of factions has been the various and unequal distribution of property. Those who hold and those who are without property have ever formed distinct interests in society. And you add, if the new constitution is not ratified, Madison warned, the poor will organize around such improper or wicked projects, as he called it, as an abolition of debts and an equal division of property. Has U.S. democracy always been afraid of socialism? And if it has, even before there was a United States, even before there was a socialism, <laughs> what does that say to you about the so-called founding fathers? Um, I think founding fathers, unlike, uh, I think they were very honest with themselves, right? And even with the public, in, in, in as far as they thought anybody else but the elite will read the um, the Federalist Papers. They were very clear, I think, always that the Constitution was a class project. And that understanding of the Constitution, it's funny because in the U.S., right, nobody, uh, people are discouraged uh, from talking about class. When you start writing about class, you kind of, uh, you know, you know, uh, dismissed as a lunatic or a Marxist. But the elites have always talked about class, right? And we're always afraid of the working classes. You know, there was this um, decision, Supreme Court decision, um, Pollock versus Farmers Loan and Trust Corporation uh, of 1895, and the uh, that. Um, court case questioned the constitutionality of the new federal tax on dividends, interests, and rents. And one of the justices, uh, Justice Field, I believe, um, he wrote 
that their income tax was arbitrary and capricious. And what he also said, he said it was an assault on capital and would lead to, and I quote, a war of the poor against the rich, a war constantly growing in intensity and bitterness. So the elites, I mean, and that's, that case is a uh, hundred years after the constitution was written, the elites were al always knew uh, whose side, side they were on and that this was very much a class warfare. You write the Constitution is a document that enshrines class warfare of the propertied few against the propertyless many. Its, its goals have always been inherently anti-democratic and reflected the wealthy elite's fear of the unwashed masses. Now, many from the right all the way to the center left would argue that not only is there absolutely no class war happening in the United States, to suggest one is disloyal, if not treasonous. As you were saying, Marxist or somehow uh, you're a communist all of a sudden. To you, right. what explains this unwillingness to even have a discussion on class war? Because we've had guests and listeners from overseas who have told me they are always shocked by the lack of class consciousness in the United States. To you, what explains that relative lack of class consciousness? Does the Constitution somehow erase class from politics in the U.S.? Well, I think the Constitution doesn't by itself raise it, right? But the Constitution was written within... Uh, particular political culture, which is a, in the United States, uh, uh, liberal political culture. Um, you know, Louis Hartz famously wrote that Americans are irrational liberals. Um, they didn't fight for liberalism, they kind of just inherited it. So they didn't quite understand what it is, but uh, they've uh, internalized it and they uh, very much believe in the, in the ideas of um, individuality and uh, individual freedoms and private property and free market. Um, and once you internalize these ideas, then everything else that has to do with class rather than individualism is preposterous, right? There is no, as you know, Thatcher said, you know, there is no such thing as society, right? And I think Americans in many ways have believed in that uh, for the past 200 years. You argue that the Constitution was explicitly designed as an anti-democratic document meant to protect the wealthy few from the democratic aspirations of working people. The Constitution's defense of private property was closely linked to its unapologetic defense of white supremacy and the Bill of Rights by granting a few civil liberties in a highly unequal society creates an illusion of freedom and equality while reinforcing unequal participation and influence in political life. Yesterday, we were talking to An Barak, author of Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and sparked global carbonization, which discusses the growth of the British Empire. Barack cites W.E.B. Du Bois writing in 1925, quote, with the democratic face at home, modern imperialism turns a visage of stern and unyielding autocracy toward its darker colonies. Barack adds, if energy animated a liberal uh, a liberal political and economic dynamics in Europe, this was based on a carbon autocracy and racism elsewhere. Does the U.S. Constitution try to accomplish the same feat as the British Empire? Does it attempt to give the impression of democracy at home while being grounded in what amounts to an oligarchy elsewhere, an autocracy overseas? Um, I think originally not so much, right? Because during when, they, uh, when the Constitution was written, I think Americans were more concerned about domestic affairs and not yet concerned with their imperial goals that came um, later, right, 100 years later. Um, but I, I think it certainly helps uh, maintain uh, this illusion of stability and equality uh, and democracy. And then uh, by maintaining that at home, it's possible to do despicable things abroad 
um, and, and selling people this kind of fairy tale that, you know, we all for equality and democracy and so forth. You also point out that the American Constitution was, first and foremost, a class project. And you point out that, uh, you know, about the growing power, not the power, growing power of money, but you talk about the power of money. Federalist Papers written to convince opponents of the necessity of replacing the Articles of Confederation. It was meant to protect existing inequalities, which Madison argued were the natural result of different and unequal faculties of acquiring uh, property. He was concerned that if elites did not take necessary precautions, the poor would revolt against the wealthy as you've been discussing. Now, there's growing concern right now here in the United States over the last 10, 20 years of the power of money over politics in the U.S. Is money becoming more powerful or has it always been this powerful? Because I'm afraid, I'm just afraid you, Katarina, that we are missing something when we see, oh, now money has power in the United States because of Citizens United. Now money has power in the United States because of this or that, that it didn't have this kind of power in the past. Do we miss something when we think that money has growing power here in the United States? Do we miss some kind of historical context? Absolutely. I mean, yes, the money in politics has become more visible lately, right? Uh, It's much more expensive today to have, you know, uh, to participate in political campaigns, for example, than it was 100 years ago. Um, But money was always part, I mean, you couldn't be a poor person in politics, that would be an oxymoron, right? So um, the the idea that somehow, uh, if we go back to the past, we're going to uh, go back to our more democratic roots is preposterous. I mean, the first um, uh, the first part, you know, part of American history, um, the only people who could participate in politics were uh, propertyed white males, and the franchise was expanded to others, to the poor, propertyless classes uh, throughout the nineteenth um, century. Um, only only because of economic reasons. For example, the westward, uh, westward expansion to encourage people to move to the West, right? Um, so, and, and then and then once uh, the poor people from other countries started to come to American cities, right, in the early 20th century, um, franchise was uh, regulated once more. So the, uh, the idea was to exclude poor people from politics, even if it was just meant voting. Um, so money was very much always part of American politics. And if you were not just poor, but also middle class, you were very unlikely to get very far in your demands and your uh, political power. You write about the fear that the uh, framers, the writers of the Constitution, had about revolution. You write, this was not an imaginary fear. Shays' Rebellion, a violent uprising in Massachusetts by farmers who opposed property foreclosures and other measures meant to rob them of their already scarce resources, was one of the main events that triggered the Constitutional Convention. Was the U.S. then always meant to be revolution-proof? And more importantly, what kind of government do you think is created when your priority is to make certain it cannot be overthrown? Right, it's a great question. So um, I think the Constitution was meant to make it more or less revolution-proof. Whether or not it succeeded, we'll see. Right, um, But uh, it's been flexible enough and i think flexibility you know people think about it's a good thing but it's also sometimes not so good for example you know during the great depression um 
the flexibility of the constitution eventually allowed FDR to, uh, you know, pass his new deal. Um, so after, you know, some resistance from the courts, as we know. Um, so, but I think, yes, I think the constitution was meant to be revolution proof, not only um, by creating, you know, including certain things like preventing people from participating in politics, right? Remo removing people from politics, but also um, creating this illusion of uh, democracy, which made people feel like they do matter and they can participate. So today, you know, people will say, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain. That's a kind of common, right, phrase. But when people do vote, they really don't have much choice, right, in a two-party system, uh, for instance, um, you know, very soon, very likely we're going to have, you know, Trump versus Biden. Those are our choices, right? And those, they're, they're horrific choices to begin with, of course. Um, but, you know, uh, Louis Hartz made this very kind of interesting, um, uh, he wrote something very interesting, right? In his book, he said, law has flourished on the corpse of philosophy in America for the settlement of the ultimate moral question is the end of on it, uh, because the Constitution is seen as this kind of uh, Talmudic text, right? It's, it's this kind of word from God, um, and because it has such uh, power in popular psyche, people tend to refer to the Constitution as a document that pr protects them, right? Defends them from the government somehow, because it has such power over people. Uh, a lot of questions. Once politicians tell people that they have been decided in the court, uh, or the Constitution says this is how it's supposed to be, the questions are closed, right? And people stop debating them, uh, or can they complain about them, but there's really nothing they think they can do. And this is this is the biggest problem, I think, right? Because um, in the context of today, for example, with the coronavirus, right? There's some conversations, for example, in Spain, right? The nationalized. Uh, private hospitals um, and their conversation can we do that in the United States and the question is important one but we don't know because we don't know what the Supreme Court would say about it right it's a so there's a certain uncertainty about it and this is the time when people should be able to say and I think that as somebody who defends radical democracy I think people should always be able to say it when politicians and this document written over 200 years ago doesn't allow us to protect ourselves and lead the most democratic lives possible, people should take direct action. People should take control of their own lives. But unfortunately today, people don't realize that. Is the right here in the United States correct when they say the U.S. was never supposed to be a democracy and therefore we are not supposed to be pursuing democratic projects or aiming for democracy as a goal. To what degree, I know that, that, that what they're trying to do is frame it into a misleading way, but to what degree is the right correct? Yeah, ironically, I think the right is more correct than, uh, than liberals or progressives in this term. Yeah, I think uh, historically, right, it was never meant to be a democracy, it was the constitution was designed as a document that would curb democracy from spreading, right? Um, to prevent the majorities from forming and the, the poor specifically from coming together and uh, taking control of their lives and taking real power. So I think from a historical perspective, the right is absolutely correct. The only problem with that is, and that 
because the right realizes, I think, that people take this kind of American history as, uh, you know, a God-given uh, kind of constant. Um, if this is the fact, right, this is the correct interpretation, that there's nothing you can do about it. Instead of saying, if this is the correct interpretation, I think they are uh, more or less correct about it, then we must do something very quickly. We must rebel against the existing system and uh, fight for radical democracy. Right. Instead, they're fighting for the act, the opposite of that. They're fighting for right. radical authoritarianism. You write, right. you write the original Constitution included no mention of citizens' right to vote, which everybody should know, and only the propertied few were allowed to participate in national electoral politics at the time. Yet so great was the Founding Fathers' fear of and dist- distaste for working people that they included various safeguards in the Constitution to limit any potential deepening of democratic rights to prevent the masses from electing senators, some of the most prominent members of the federal government at the time. This power was originally delegated to state legislatures. This only changed in 1913 with the passage of the 17th Amendment, which allowed for direct election of senators. Is the U.S. today then far more democratic than the Founding Fathers ever wanted it to be? Yes, I think absolutely. Um, you know, there have been ups and downs, right? If you look at the, if you kind of look at the short-term um, effects, you would, you, you could see that, um, you know, we've been going back and forth, right? But in the long term, you know, on, on long-term scale, I would say that we, we have been increasingly democratic, especially starting in, let's say, uh, you know, really early 20th century, but really starting with 1940s and on. Having said that, um, there are constitutional limits to that expansion. And I think there's a danger of seeing this, um, this very slow process of democratization as something that, you know, would lead to infinite progress. And if we just wait hundred more years, then maybe eventually people will have real power. Uh, number one, people don't have a hundred more years. Um, and two, um, a lot of these improvements, a lot of these improvements are of procedural kind. When it comes to the question of property rights, which are really pretty much enshrined in the constitution, this is something that will not be questioned, right? And this is, I think, the question of economic inequality. Uh, is one of the uh, most important parts of real, uh, de- real democracy, as opposed to the sham that we have in this country right now. Has property always had more rights than people in the United States? Absolutely. Absolutely. So where can you show that manifesting itself? So somebody who might be very patriotic in the United States and believe that that is not correct. Where would you show, where can you point to where you can say, this is how this actually takes place in your everyday life? Um, I think, I mean, in everyday life, uh, I mean, the idea that, uh, so in, in real democracy, and I ask my students this question, you know, and I tell them, you know, you think you live in democracy, one of the best democracies in the world, if not the best democracy in the world, as a lot of people believe here, of course, right? Um, what does democracy mean? It means control over, over not just going into voting booths every two years or four years or six years, right? But to uh, having control over everyday life, but you don't have control over your workplace or your salary or quality of food or quality of education, the uh, quality of healthcare, or access to healthcare. Those are basic 
democratic rights that everybody should have in order to be able to really meaningfully participate in actual democratic processes. And it's something that people don't have. But in the constitutional uh, cases, I think it's very interesting that, for example, in um, uh, whenever federal government try to regulate um, labor laws, for instance, it used the most ridiculous justifications. For example, in Hammer versus Dagenhardt, a case in 1918, um, had to do with banning child labor. And the federal government couldn't just ban child labor, couldn't say because of the constitutional restrictions, federal government couldn't just say we ban child labor because the humanity would benefit from it, because child labor is bad, right? It's immoral. We all, all agree on it. Uh, the used commerce clause justification, right? Because, you know, child labor is part of the commerce clause, Congress can regulate. And the Supreme Court said that uh, manufacture precedes commerce, therefore child labor cannot be regulated by the federal government. Um, another example I give in the in the article is the case where, um, one of the, the case that is considered the first civil rights kind of win um, in this country, where um, the uh, the law that says that you know if if most of the people on in the on the block uh, are white, then the black person can buy a house in the same block, um, and uh, Supreme Court ruled that unconstitutional as well, not because racism and white supremacy are just horrible concepts, right? But because it was violation of private private property rights. So we always have put uh, private property before people. But at least we have the Bill of Rights, right? You point out that while the inclusion of the Bill of Rights was progressive for its time, it actually represents a list of liberties rather than rights, with the right to jury trial being one notable exception. Despite its, names, the, its name, the document doesn't include a positive obligation on behalf of the state to ensure the ability of all people to take full advantage of their status as active democratic participants, nor does it assure, through guarantees of economic, social, and political rights, their full membership in the political community of the country. The difference is important. It illustrates perhaps better than any other part of the Constitution the ideological foundation of the U.S. political system. These are liberties, not rights. We do not have the right to free speech. We have the liberty to free speech, and nobody can take that liberty away from us. Isn't that then the same as rights? How are liberties and rights different? So the liberties basically says that government shall not, right? The government cannot punish you for free speech. The rights uh, mean government has to provide you with certain things to ensure your access to certain goods or services. So for example, right to healthcare means that uh, you cannot be turned away whether or not you have money or health insurance from the from uh, quality healthcare, right? Uh, right to housing means uh, not just you're free to live in the house and nobody can kick you out, but the government has to ensure that you have access to housing. I think it's a, a very, very important distinction. Right to speech, if it was such a right, would mean we would have to reevaluate re what it means to have the right to free speech. Uh, does a homeless person have the right to free speech? They don't. They have a liberty, uh, right? Meaning that if they say something, they can be punished for it. But right to free speech requires more than having a mouth. It requires resources and education and audience, right? In order to be actually be effective in one speech. Uh, so Trump and a homeless person both have 
uh, you know, can practice their First Amendment rights. But that's ridiculous, right, to say that somehow the First Amendment applies equally to both. You also point out and you argue that the Constitution enforces inequality and then uses the outcome of that inequality to judge and exclude others from political participation. So why are we all so concerned in this political moment about inequality if it is built into the Constitution? To what degree can we actually address inequality if, as you argue, the Constitution actually enforces that inequality? Um, Well, I would argue in the in the the goal for uh, for us, right? People who believe in radical democracy, as opposed to very very limited liberal democracy that we are today, uh, is to um, get rid of the constitution, right, and create a more radical. I would call I call it a socialist constitution, right, which would take uh, into account all the actual real popular needs in order to be a real democracy, right, in order to participate meaningfully in the political process in everyday life, right, people have to be able to democratically decide how to work in their workplaces, uh, decide on their education, their health care, access to uh, resources, food, uh, housing, and so forth. And all these things, without them, you cannot have real democracy. You can't have that a homeless person or a person that suffers suffers from uh, food insecurity, for example, or lack of access to healthcare, somehow lives in a in a democratic society. Unless we mean democratic society as a society where some people, once every two or four or six years, can go and cast their vote for a limited number of wealthy candidates. You write that some say, why throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the U.S. Constitution? Perhaps it's just a matter of interpretation. Couldn't socialists interpret the American Constitution better? Couldn't socialists use the existing existing document to their advantage? What do Bernie Sanders supporters believe Sanders can deliver that you would suggest the Constitution says he could not? Are there democratic socialist goals that are simply, through current interpretation of the Constitution, unconstitutional. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the, a lot, or rather, a lot of them would uh, encounter a lot of opposition from the Supreme Court. Right now, Supreme Court is packed with conservatives, right? And if if Bernie Sanders came to power, and uh, you know, if he tried to alleviate some suffering, right, among the public, it's very likely the Supreme Court would stop him. I mean, it happened during the FDR years as well, right? So it's not new. We know how it works. And uh, if Bernie lived long enough or he was succeeded by somebody like him, eventually they could change the constitution of the court, uh, maybe to change, you know, I mean, all these things are what if kind of thing, right? But uh, effectively, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Democratic Socialists are proposing to work with and within the system that was is built not to work for the majority of the people. So uh, I think that is an impossible demand. Um, they could certainly, certainly achieve uh, certain uh, improvements uh, and nothing to sneeze at, right? Uh, but I don't think uh, anything revolutionary would happen. So when considering the Constitution's flexibility, is it flexible enough for Bernie Sanders and his supporters to change it into a democratic socialist document? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, yeah, sure, you can add, uh, first of all, again, amendments are super 
hard to pass, pr practically impossible. So I would, uh, I would not uh, expect Bernie Sanders and Democrat Socialists to pass an amendment saying people have the right uh, to quality housing, quality education, quality food, uh, right, right to job, and all these, and uh, you know, all these things that without which actual real democracy uh, can't exist. I don't think that would be possible. You ask what would a truly emancipatory democratic constitution look like at the very least. It would do three things, abolish private property, encourage rather than prevent meaningful po political participation, and ensure civil rights. These three requirements are, of course, entirely interconnected. Does, <laughs> this is just a silly question, because this is something I always hear from people who are concerned <laughs> about it. Does nobody have any stuff without private property? Does any, what do you mean? Does anybody do? Do we it? lose all of our stuff? Do we have? Do, oh, we, get, right. do we get to yeah, keep that's anything? Because right. that's right. that's yeah. the idea of private. Yeah. You know, we lose private property. We have to put that's all right. of our but stuff out on the front lawn. My toothbrush, right? Exactly. That's right. You know, what happens to my car? No, uh, there's a difference. I think. I mean, you know, obviously, right? But uh, there's a difference between personal property, property, and private property. And personal property, your home, uh, your car, your toothbrush, your teddy bear, right? You get to keep. Uh, private property is something that you know uh, that you make money off without actually working. So you lose that extra house that you rent to people, for example. You lose uh, uh, your factory uh, where other people make uh, work, so you can make profit. Uh, so that stuff is going to be gone, right? <laughs> yeah. Can we get the socialist democracy that social democrats want only through a new constitution? Um, I think no. I mean, it's the constitution is uh, something that would happen um, after uh, after revolution, right? So uh, we can, I think, we can get a socialist state after we get rid of this one, and then we'll write a new constitution. Unfortunately, I mean, in, we cannot write a new constitution within the existing state just by voting people we don't like away. It's not going to happen. It's uh, it's an impossibility now. So what would you call the kind of government the United States has today, if not a democracy? Um, you know, there was a report in Harvard, uh, some Harvard report a few years ago that called uh, United States an oligarchy. Um, and I think it's pretty accurate description of the current state of affairs. Um, but, you know, I'm not opposed to calling it a uh, very, very limited uh, procedural democracy. Um, that is to say, people do have access to uh, to voting, right? Um, somewhat limited. Um, electoral system makes uh, voting less meaningful because it's a, a single member district electoral system. Uh, proportional presentation would work better. It would also lead to a higher voter turnout. We don't have that. So we have all these limitations. But, you know, again, the definition, the kind of academic definition of procedural democracy, liberal democracy, doesn't require any particular, you know, uh, better electoral system, right, or more public participation, any of those things. So I think uh, the best way to describe it is an oligarchy. But again, if it's, we'll call it a liberal democracy, very limited liberal democracy, I'd be fine with that as well. It's not a compliment. Liberal democracy, it is not a good thing to be. We have been speaking with Yekaterina 
Oziashvili. She wrote the Left Voice article, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy. She teaches politics at Sarah Lawrence College. One last question for you, Yekaterina, and it is what we call the question from hell. We do this for all of our guests. It's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. What will the next world, when we finally return to it after the virus, what will more likely happen in the next world? Will we have radical democracy or radical fascism? You know, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question, right? Um, there, I think an optimist in me says we're going to have a radical democracy. We're going to have a socialist uh, radical democracy. Um, and this is the only way that we as, as humanity can survive. But uh, the way that, you know, if you look at the um, movement, the, the success of right wing, uh, extremist right wing movements and parties throughout the world, right, Bolsonaro uh, and Modi and uh, everything and pretty much all movements and parties in Europe, right, um, AFD getting success in Germany of all places. Um, so, you know, um, I don't, I mean, in the short term, I don't. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to be pessimist, so I'm not going to say I'm not very hopeful, but it's possible that we're moving towards fascism. Yes, right now, if I would to say right now, uh, it's prob- more probable we're going to move t- towards more fascist kind of government. It's, uh, you know, it's a modern kind of uh, v- version of it, but I, sh- I certainly hope that it's not the case. I, hope- I, I, I want to fight for the for the other alternative. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's all hope for the other one. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show this week. This is really fascinating writing, and I cannot uh, thank you enough. Everybody should go check out Yekaterina's article, which we have linked at our website, thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. In a moment, we will also have the moment of truth and what's happening on the show next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Live streaming host, that doesn't sound right. Uh, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? God, I'm so sick of the fact that personal quarantine is the phrase that I know what it means now. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio or email us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. It's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now along with our trucker cap, t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, and more at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell? Oh yeah, I got a bunch. What are you? What have you already run out of in your personal quarantine? This is via Twitter. Red State Blues says, sex and drugs and rock and... Mm. I still have roll. <laughs> Kyle B says, open buffets. <laughs> Put says, come. <laughs> Can I say that on the radio? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> don't put that on the air. Thanks, Put. Uh, Garrett S. says, Jenkum, <laughs> which I think the raw materials for that might be sustainable, <laughs> Garrett. Uh, Reconstruction says, America's democratic unity and superiority. Also cheese. <laughs> Eric Eric W. says, patience with the Democratic Party. Ben says, ways to explain to boomers and zoomers why they have to stay home. 
Uh, Andy says, good times. Margaret Kimberly, uh, past guest Margaret Kimberly says, wine. And Tara D says, my dignity. I love when there's an academic who's in brilliant who then says the first thing that they run out of in their personal quarantine is wine. That's just always just so heartwarming. Uh, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell after Jeff on Patreon this week. I'll be telling you all sorts of stuff I can't mention on air on WNUR, Lumpen Radio, Radio Free Moscow, stuff I'm not willing to tell you even during our live stream because I'm afraid it's going to piss a lot of people off, but I can tell you during our Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers to uh, of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll also play an interview from our archives as we do every week, and Alex has been looking for something uplifting that will get our minds off the virus, so good luck with finding anything uplifting in our content over the past 23-plus years. Alex, what did you find that you're going to be playing tomorrow? Oh, last week we said we were going to do this, and then we played that Mike Davis interview on <laughs> avian bird flu. Uh, so this week, actually, though, I do have a, a fun interview. Uh, the uh, the content tag fun on This Is Hell is uh, pretty limited on our website. <laughs> but we're going to be playing a 2014 interview with Iceland with Reykjavik mayor, and uh, probably the first mayor ever to have a crass tattoo, Jan Nar. It's, it's really fun and wacky. Uh, so I guess... Uh, Hopefully, you don't get too used to having fun interviews. Cause that's like one of the only ones I could find. But it's really, it's one of, it was one of our favorites. This, uh, it was this was before this is in 2014 before Iceland had become a, a like a real popular tourist destination as it is today. And it's just really amazing listening to Nar Jan Nar talk about uh, Iceland and how you know there's only 300,000 people, 350,000 people. So he said everybody's famous, and he was on the front page of the Reykjavik newspaper when he was 14 because he grew a Mohawk. That was the reason he was on the front page of the paper. I think he got in a bike accident or something too, but he had a Mohawk and everybody was freaked out in the late 80s that there was a kid in Iceland with a Mohawk. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can help out This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise. And I really got (laughs) to... change that in the script here where it says instead of clicking on support it says licking on support because in these days of COVID-19 that's probably not a very good idea coming up during the moment of truth contributor Jeff Dorchin ranks the Austrian nobility we'll also have the question from hell winner and who's on next week's shows keep in mind a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high but not enough this week so again listeners if you want to help out my personal quarantine I need weed. This is hell. My guess is you already have Jeffy on the line. You know what to do. No one knows why. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Dateline, Los Angeles, Friday the 13th, March 2020. Coronavirus empties all the stores of their toilet paper, the beginning of the end. But let's not dwell on that, shall we not? Shall we? Shan't we? Let's shan't, shan't we? I'm taking the cutest little pills for high blood pressure. They're called chlorthalidone. They're about as big as those little, I don't know, know if you remember these. I know not a lot of you are old enough, 
Little saccharin tablets. My grandma had a tiny serving vessel with a tiny spoon. I think it was silver, or at least silver plate. It was the shape of a cake pedestal with a lid hinged at the back. It was about the diameter of a Kennedy half dollar, and at most two inches high with the lid closed. Oh, it had a tiny tongs, too. And they worked, these little chlorothalidones. Well, in tandem with Losartan. No one knows why. My BP ranges from normal to mildly high after only a week of taking these. I have my own personal blood pressure cuff and electrosphygmomanometer. I get to take my blood pressure twice every day. So much fun. So what is the value of a human life as a society that has shrugged off the burden of enlightenment humanism collapses around us? Whoa, that's an abrupt transition. Okay, here's another one. No one knows where blood pressure comes from. Some say it was created by space aliens to prop up the pharmaceutical industry, which provides said aliens with safe and effective baby formula with which they turn their unfertilized polyhedrons into babies. Some say it's the curse of King Tutankhamun for the violation of his tomb and theft of artifacts therefrom. He especially misses his coffee table. He's got to spend eternity holding a world's greatest pharaoh mug full of Trader Joe's breakfast blend because some Englishman wanted a fancy piece on which to show off his magazines. Still others call blood pressure the silent killer because it's not a particularly noisy form of hypertension, except when it causes fits of yelling, and then it's called Mr. Furious's Revenge after a character Ben Stiller played. My blood pressure was very high last summer. No one knows why. It's been high, probably, for the past 16 years. I'm sure I've done a lot of damage to my body by not getting diagnosed and treated. Let that be a lesson to me. So, what is the value of a human life as a society that has shrugged off the burden of enlightenment humanism collapses around us? Depends. Depends what mood we're in. You can't legislate morality. You have to have morality as an unspoken basis for your governance from the get-go. You either value human beings over profit or you don't. Guess which way our governing philosophy leans? Do not ask. It leans on thee. No one knows why. Did everyone receive their census notices? Very important you fill that out. They need to get an accurate count of everyone in the USA. That number will decide the minimum amount of UBI they'll need to dole out to keep us from rioting, how many cops they'll need to hire to control us if we do riot, how much tear gas they'll need to deploy, how many rubber bullets to issue. I wonder if eating a couple of bananas during the day would lower my blood pressure. I think I read that it would, although no one knows why. I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to assume it's true. I want to inject the name... Samuel Siegfried Karl Witter von Basch in here before I forget. He was an Austrian Jew who died in 1905, the same year Einstein published his special theory of relativity and his extra special theory of relativity, as well as several very unpopular graphic novels about anthropomorphic bats who get into sword fights. That's a little known fact and a subject for another time. Right now, I'm concerned with Samuel Siegfried Karl Ritter von Basch, the Austrian Jew. He invented the sphygmomanometer, a device for measuring blood pressure without penetrating the skin. Up until then, you had to stick a hollow needle into an artery and watch how far the blood pushed a column of mercury up a tube. 
I am so glad I don't have to do that to myself two times a day for three weeks. That would not be entertaining. In 1881, that's the year Samuel Siegfried Karl Ritter von Bosch invented the sphygmomanometer. Ritter was his title. It was the second lowest rank of Austrian nobility, just above Scraper, just below Crouton. He was given this title years after escaping from Mexico with his life. No one knows why. How did he end up in Mexico, you ask? You might as well ask how he became the personal physician to Emperor Maximilian of Mexico, because that's what he was just before being run out of town by Benito Juarez, who chopped off Maximilian's head. Which decapitation put Samuel Siegfried Karl on notice to flee? Perhaps Senor Juarez resented the claim of an Austrian to imperial reign over Mexico, as was a common feeling among other Mexicans. But, you know, around then, the Austrians were pretty hot shit. They were about to mate with Hungary and become such an empire that the simple assassination of the heir to their throne could ignite the Great War. I don't think it was worth it myself. After the Battle of Puebla, the first one, the one Mexico won against the French, which is celebrated on Cinco de Mayo by frat boys, and which eventually led to the French sending more troops the following year, and this time winning another Battle of Puebla, Napoleon III made Maximilian the Emperor of Mexico as part of the settlement of an old cribbage debt. So you can see why Maximilian might have been a bone in the throat of the Mexicans. Benito Juarez and Samuel Siegfried Karl might have been friends under other circumstances. Although under vastly different circumstances, they might not have had any more effect on each other than a butterfly does on a hurricane. But it was. Samuel and Benito had a few things in common. They both rose from obscure origins from a minority population within larger empires ruled by descendants of the House of Habsburg-Lorraine. They might have bonded the Yiddish-speaking Jew from the ghetto of Prague and the Zogocho-speaking Zapotec from Oaxaca. But in the end, Benito identified Samuel as one of the oppressors, and Samuel saw Benito as one of the unruly rabble. So Samuel fled back to Austria to invent the Sphygmomanometer and become Ritterized. And so the death of Samuel Siegfried Karl Ritter von Bash in the same miracle year as Einstein's four cosmos-changing papers and 30 or so graphic novels of no great impact was the clarion call that the Enlightenment and the Euclidean universe had come to an end. Since that time, we've been living in an unresolved dialectic, a smoothie which refuses to become smooth, the clunky barbarism of oppression and war rattling around in a scrabble tile bag together with genius and compassion personified. We have capitalism at its peak right now, helping destroy everything for the short-term pleasure of the few, the few cocaine addicts snorting cocaine like there's no tomorrow. No one knows why. Cavalier about destroying their marriages and their futures. No one knows why, cracking in the rattle bag against the tender arts, the noble sciences, the care work, education, and other hoi polloi, as we settle in to watch it all clatter and smash from our isolated panopticons. What will win? Will anything win? Will anything worth living for synthesize out of this Czechs mix dialectic where the Czechs represent the stuff you'd rather wasn't in the mix because it's made of aluminum? I heard China where the virus was first identified, 
has just reported zero new infections. How about that? Should we celebrate prematurely and go right back to full throttle, burning up the world, wiping our asses on every precious thing the Einsteinian cosmos has bestowed? You realize that this is the perfect opportunity for the ruling class to decide either to let us die or that every human is worthy of life. Which way do you think they're leaning? Do not ask, for they lean on thee. Can't we keep growth and progress on pause for a little longer? The fact that our isolation has somehow happened concurrently with a drop in greenhouse gas emissions and a drop in my blood pressure, no one knows why, but it can't be mere coincidence. I'm sure there's causation in there somewhere. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! You know, Einstein's graphic novel with the sword fighting bats, ironically... The sword-fighting bat uh, defends the laws of physics while Einstein challenged them. So I always found that very odd in that graphic novel of his. Well, you know, he, he wanted to indict himself a little bit. Oh, so you think it was kind of postmodern? Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding? That was the beginning of postmodernism. Was uh, Einstein's graphic novel. Einstein's graphic novels. It was a whole series of them. It was called The, 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 the Three Flighter Mouseketeers. <laughs> So uh, we have a word of the week this week. Uh, we haven't had a word of the week for a while because I have not had a problem with the vocabulary that, of the stuff that I've been reading. That is until this week when I was reading on Brock's book, Powering Empire, How Coal Made the Middle East and Sparked Global Carbonization. Our word of the week is, Jeffy, can you define? Have you been? Uh, have you ever encountered this word before? I think I have. I just oh, did not know the, what it meant, and it was only a vague memory. Inosculate, I-N-O-S-C-U-L-A-T-E. It is a verb, inosculate. Do you have any idea of what it is? Oscillation uh, boy? Uh, osculation, uh, uh, to, um, to give the kiss of life. I have no idea, to be honest with you. Inosculate. I wonder what rectal inosculation is. Um, well, I know. Yeah. Well, it says joined by intertwining or fitting closely together. So I guess I do know what rectal inosculation is. I guess we all do. I think it's just spooning, but in reverse. Did you know that the um, there's a version of cats with uh, where they all have CGI uh constructed buttholes that, <laughs> yes. that they then had to delete. Yes. They had to take them all out. Yes. Do you want to see that one? I, I don't want to see it at all, but I, I would I would see one with the butthole. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I love the headline for one of the reviews of Cats was uh, Cats the movie, the worst thing to happen to cats since dogs. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jeffy. Until next cats week. Cats and dogs. There's all kinds of videos of cats and dogs making out, <laughs> kissing each other. They love each Look, other. That's at the sites you go to. I don't go to those. Oh, yeah. It's interspecies porn. <laughs> all right. Until next week. What? Stay healthy. Thank you. I will try. <laughs> Live from the traditional lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is 
Alex Jerry, this week's question from Al is, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell. You still got a couple minutes to do it at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio. Email it to us, Chuck at this is hell.com, Alex at this is hell.com. The winner this week gets the This is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. That's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now if you do not win, along with our trucker cap t-shirt, tote bag, coffee mug, and more at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell? Oh yeah, here's the rest. Uh, what did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? Ariana M says drops to prevent nerve damage from toxins, pesticides, etc. They make, they make drops for that? Yeah, I guess. Eric S says powdered water. John T <laughs> says cytokines. The problem with powdered water is what do you add to LB says, reasons not to day drink. <laughs> Get ready for people to say lube. Mm-mm. Pete V says, lube. Mm. Jesse W says, lube. <laughs> I think we're going to get another one of those, too. Uh, Ed F says, any desire to watch the news or look at Twitter? Mm. Andrew S says, COVID-19 test kits. I'm an NBA player and have been testing myself <laughs> daily despite not having symptoms. <laughs> Rob H says, strawberries. Dan O says, podcasts. Jeffy D says, Klondike bars. <laughs> what have you already run out of in your personal quarantine? Sebastian M says, F words to give. Laura, uh, Laura E says, excitement for having the perfect excuse to cancel plans and the novelty of unlimited alone time. <laughs> John M says, patience. But patience the other way, like people who are dying. No. Martin F says, uh, Martin. Martin F says, semen. Mm. I can only masturbate so many times before I need to take a break. On the plus side, my arm has never been stronger. You only use one arm. That's just stupid. <laughs> Adam K says hope. Krimsky K says patience. <laughs> the other patience. Uh, Matt H says bananas. Damn, I'm out of bananas too. <laughs> Steve C says fingernails. <laughs> that's my favorite one. That's my favorite one. Uh, Marco VB says spousal goodwill. <laughs> that's good too. David I says Russian novels to read. <laughs> Nikki e says reasons to bathe. What have you run out of already in your personal quarantine? Eric T says, I'm prepared to loot. I won't be running out of anything. (laughs) Andrea J says, human touch. Crying emoji, crying emoji, crying emoji. Couple more. David S says, time. And so is the rest of the goddamn human race. (laughs) Greg M says, toilet paper. Goddamn it. I should have planned ahead and hoarded it. My ass is chafed from having to use old print copies of Jacobin. Oh, man. Do not do that. That paper is not quality enough. The glossy glossy one's bad. Uh, Uh, Also, finally, Fabio L says, memes. My my answer to this week's question from L... What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? What did you already run out of in your personal quarantine? Like I said earlier this week, I've run out of weed, but I've also run out of patience with germaphobes. And if I had the weed, I wouldn't have run out of patience with germaphobes. Get me some goddamn weed, will you? The answers I liked most this week were David and many people saying time, but David added, and so has the rest of the goddamn world or human race. Nick, reasons to bathe. I did like that one. Uh, Marco saying spousal goodwill. Krimsky saying patience, as well as a lot of other people saying patience. And John saying patience. And many of you said hope. That was good. Uh, Dan replying podcasts. That uh, That's what he's run out of during his personal quarantine. And Dan, I think that is literally impossible to do. You cannot run out of podcasts. There are so many of them. We have 235 at our Patreon page alone. And then we've got, what, another, like, 400 at our website? So, please, 
Dave, you cannot run out of podcasts. Sebastian saying F words to give. That's really great. I liked Wally saying potable scotch because I had this vision of being at a campsite where there was a gigantic tank that said potable scotch on it. Daniel, I really liked his answer. Self-discipline, hoping I soon will run out of procrastination. And Harold saying my sense of nostalgia for a simpler time when Rudy Giuliani was on TV every day. That was really good. But Steve C., you are correct, Alex, that was the best one. Uh, What Steve C. is running out of in his personal quarantine is fingernails, as in biting your fingernails, because... This is a disaster. That makes this week's winner Steve C. Steve sent us a uh, message via Facebook and uh, give us your mailing address. You have won the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive loaded with 25 interviews we did over the past 20 years. It's a great way to keep you going in these hellish times. You can get one right now along with our trucker cap, which if you wear out in the world today, tells you exactly how you feel about the world you're in, just like our t-shirt will do. The tote bag is very heavy duty, so it'll carry as many supplies as you might need during your looting. Uh, The coffee mug is great, so when you do get arrested for that looting, it's uh, steel, and you can rattle it along the jail bars while you're sitting in your cell. And you can find all of that and more at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after at the same place. All right. uh, Well, I can guarantee you that evolutionary biologist and public health phylogeographer Philogeographer mm. Rob Wallace will be on to talk about his monthly review pieces, Capitalism, It is a Disease Hotspot, and Notes on a Novel Coronavirus. We've had a lot of suggestions uh, for Rob, so really excited to a have A philogeographer is just somebody who knows where baklava is. <laughs> okay, can you not say that on Monday? <laughs> uh, so that is on Monday. I don't know about Tuesday. I'm still working on it. And um, hopefully Wednesday, we've had to cancel this once because of illness, but... Uh, Seems like we've been canceling a lot of things to illness recently. Uh, Martin Hagland, I think, will be on. We've planned for... Oh, uh, he was sick this time. Yes. Oh, yeah, Yeah, he was sick. Uh, I believe we have targeted the 25th, so uh, he'll be on to talk about his book, This Life, Secular Faith, and Spiritual Freedom. God willing. Oh, also one, wanted to have one plug. If uh, anyone is looking for a uh, other podcast besides This Is Hell to listen to, I've been really liking the Oral Presentations podcast. It's described as a low-pressure learning podcast hosted by a guy who sounds like he'd offer you whippets at a tailgate. <laughs> the guy who would offer me whippets as a tailgate is a total weirdo. <laughs> Any And anybody for Thursday except for Jeff doing the Moment of Truth? That's it for now. I've got a lot of work to do today. All right. I want to thank uh, all of this week's guests, Mariah Fannebecker and James A. Smith, co-authors of Work, Want, Work, Labor, and Desire at the End of Capitalism. Mariah is a research associate in critical theory and early modern literature at Strathclyde University, and you can follow her on Twitter at Mariah P. And James is a lecturer in the English department at Royal Holloway University of London. You can follow James on Twitter at New Populism. We also want to thank An Barak, author of Powering Empire, How Coal made the Middle East and sparked global carbonization. On is co-founder and co-editor of the Social History Workshop, a weekly blog published on the Heretz website, analyzing current Middle Eastern affairs through the lens of contemporary historical research. You can find that blog at levantine-journal.org blog. And thanks to today's guest, Yekaterina Oziashvili who wrote the Left Voice article, The U.S. Constitution and the Myth of Liberal Democracy. Yekaterina teaches politics at Sarah Lawrence College. This week's Hangover Cure is do everything you can to not contract coronavirus, a.k.a. COVID-19, a.k.a. MC-COVID, all caps. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. I hope to see all of you at some time in the future at This Is Hell Office Hours. 
that we will have again on Friday nights when this nightmare is over. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast, live streaming host Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. As always, we could not do the show without Alex, without Jeff Dorchin, without Ronaldo Magaldi, and especially without Theron Humiston. We especially could not do the show without your support, our listener support. So please support completely listener supported this is hell at this is at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support there's only one way to get over all of the nightmare that we are living in today and that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and remembering everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.